Psalm 122 with also a little bit of Hebrews 12. But first, let me lead us in prayer, and then we shall begin. Merciful and gracious God, we are thankful to you for every blessing that flows to us from your hand. We thank you for one another, for this place, for the food that you've blessed us with, for your word, the Bible, open now before us, and for the freedom we have to study it and reflect on it together. And we ask, Father, that you would shape us today in ways which are good for us, perhaps new to us or challenging to us, but nonetheless good for us. As we reflect on the character of worship and the importance of reverence while we're engaged in that most important of all activities. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I was scrolling through Twitter. Now, seriously, I was. Not just... Yeah, I know. It's just... After all you've said, Pastor Jeffrey, it's so disappointing. But I was genuinely scrolling through Twitter because I had been sent there... I had been sent there by somebody who pointed out what uh, John Piper, pastor and theologian John Piper, who actually I have had the privilege of meeting personally. I don't know that I'd have the privilege of counting him a friend, although he's such a gracious man, I'm sure he wouldn't object to that. What Pastor John Piper wrote a few weeks ago, and I quote, Can we reassess whether Sunday coffee sipping in the sanctuary fits. Quote, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, Hebrews 12, 28. So I dutifully, in the spirit of the humanists, went ad fontes back to the sources to read what was actually said by Pastor John Piper. That's what he said. I read the literally, no, I didn't read all thousands of responses, but that stirred up something of a hornet's nest in the evangelical church. And I've got to say, most of the responses were the kind of responses you'd expect to see on Twitter, which were, uh, sorry, it's X now, isn't it? I can't, such a boomer. <laughs> um, anyway, Twitter, um, snide and... Uh, and provocative and snarky and not advancing any kind of conversation. Uh, But there were some which I think it would be possible to read charitably as expressing genuine bewilderment. Expressing the idea that we just can't understand what all the fuss is about And therefore, that such a prominent figure making such a far-reaching statement that has the potential to significantly impact so many millions of people's lives, because apparently this is a widespread practice, uh, they just couldn't see why it's such a big deal. And they were worried about legalism, and they were worried about Pharisaism, and they were worried about a kind of holier-than-thou nitpicking attitude, and they were worrying about uh, making a big deal out of small things and neglecting the weightier matters and so on and so forth. It would be possible, I think, to read some of the responses as coming from genuine, thoughtful, perhaps, Christians on Twitter, nonetheless, 
who just genuinely didn't get why this was such a big deal. Because the modern evangelical church is absolutely corrupted with what I want to call the infectious disease of contemporary casualness. The proof of this is that if you went back even 20 years, never mind 50 or 100 or 400 years, and asked the question, is it an acceptable thing for Christians to do when they attend divine worship? Is it an acceptable thing for Christians to bring a, basically part of their breakfast with them? You would just you would meet stunned disbelief and silence from most people and raging four-hour-long sermons from the Puritans. And there are raging four-hour-long sermons from the Puritans about this kind of thing because they were not afflicted with this contemporary disease. It's not that they thought really deeply about caffeinated beverages. They'd not thought at all about caffeinated beverages in worship because the idea hadn't occurred to them because they'd thought very deeply about what worship is, the character of worship more generally, inoculated them from this and countless other innovations which now seem instinctive to us. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you've ever consumed a caffeinated beverage during a worship service. Because that's not really the point. That's one symptom, I think, of an underlying attitude of casualness about lots and lots of different things, especially about worship, which is everywhere. And the, the bitter irony is that it's found its way into our church and our churches in our denomination when we're the... If anything, that we pride ourselves on our commitment to standing against destructive aspects of contemporary culture. I recorded a podcast on this subject um, last week. In complete ignorance of Pastor Piper's tweet, I wasn't responding to it. It was just, um, uh, I realized after that that John Piper tweeted this. And I'm not at all interested in responding week by week to the to's and fro's of contemporary culture, but I am interested in responding to medium-term movements, things which develop over a period of years. If, if something has a kind of half-life of a few years as, a, kind of, as a, a, a cultural movement or a mindset shift, I think that is something worth responding to. It's not worth responding to whatever somebody said yesterday, unless it's epoch-making. But it is worth responding to things like this. I want to say quite plainly that I think the worship that you all come to All Saints for, the worship that you love, the worship that my family and I love, that was one of the reasons why we were willing to leave our homeland and travel 5,000 miles three years ago to come and serve here. That worship is in danger. It's not in danger from cups of coffee only, but it is in danger from this 
infectious disease of contemporary casualness. Now, I don't want to repeat all the things I said in the podcast, which will be released in the next day or so. It's out on YouTube already. Um, It's 27 minutes long. If I repeat all that here, I won't have time to say anything else, which I do want to say. Um, But if you... I encourage you to go and listen to that if you're at all unmoved by what I have to say, or even if you are moved and you've sought questions about it. Because... I think we need to recapture something before we lose it. I think we, are, we have a challenge ahead of us to recapture one of the things that drove the founding of our very denomination in the first place 25 years ago, which was the biblical antidote to this contemporary casualness. Holy joyful reverence in worship. It may or may not surprise you to know that the CREC is is quite unique in being dominated by churches that have a particular biblical self-consciousness about the nature and structure and purpose of corporate worship. It's not to say that this isn't found elsewhere in other denominations. Um, It's certainly not to say that it wasn't found in former ages. But the CREC is kind of unique among contemporary reform denominations and all other denominations in the US and elsewhere in understanding worship in a fundamentally biblical way as renewing covenant with a holy God. What we do when we worship God is we enter into his presence to renew our relationship with him. And the form that that covenant renewal takes ought to be shaped scripturally. Now, I think I'm going to spend some time in the coming months talking, not for the first time and not for the last time, about why worship should have that shape. If you want to do some background reading, you could look at Leviticus chapter 9. You could read um, Jeff Meyer's book, The Lord's Service. You could read any one of Jim Jordan's gazillions of different articles about this. But... Let me just leave that to one side for a moment. Let me just say that whatever the structure and shape of our particular liturgy, it's one of the things that we're here for. In the sense that it's one of the things about the denomination and the church that we're all privileged to be a part of. I think we're getting right in a way that the world has been getting wrong. Even well-meaning evangelical churches have been getting wrong. And if we're not careful we're going to head the same way. But the way we're going to head there is by retaining the structure, retaining the psalms, retaining the preaching, and approaching the whole thing with a spirit of casualness. Not just coffee cups, but a bunch of other things besides. And it's about that that I want to talk to you this evening. Just lest you think that this is some bee in Pastor Jeffrey's bonnet, I do want to read one quotation which comes from the early 17th century from a hero of mine, George Herbert, who wrote a book called A Priest to the Temple. George Herbert was an Anglican clergyman, one of the brightest lights of his generation as a theologian, but he fell out of favour with the political powers, and so he ended up being a clergyman in the middle of nowhere, a place called Bemerton, rather than being you know, some significant bigwig in Parliament. And he wrote this book, a, a Priest to the Temple, to explain to parsons, that is pastors, how to do their job. 
And in chapter 6, he writes this about how I am supposed to lead worship and how I am supposed to instruct you in it. Let me read you this. Just so you don't think that this is just some new thing I've dreamed up, okay? Listen to the words of George Herbert. The country parson... I love that. Anyway, the country pastor, if you like, when he is to read divine services, composeth himself to all possible reverence, lifting up his heart and hands and eyes and using all other gestures which may express a hearty and unfeigned devotion. Besides his example, he having often instructed his people how to carry themselves in divine service, I feel rebuked, genuinely rebuked, exacts of them all possible reverence, by no means enduring either talking or sleeping or gazing or leaning or half kneeling or any other undutiful behavior in them, but causing them when they sit or stand or kneel to do all in a straight and steady posture as attending to what is done in church. And everyone, man and child, answering aloud both amen and all other answers, which answers are not to be done in a huddling and slubbering fashion, gaping or scratching their head or spitting. What? (laughs) Even in the midst of their answer, but gently and pausably thinking what they say. A couple of brief observations just about that. First... Well, what on earth are we doing then, eating and drinking and stuff here? The answer is, what we're doing here is different than divine worship on the Lord's Day. Less than a third of the congregation is here. It's Wednesday night, midweek at All Saints. Come if you can, it'd be great if you can be there, but if you can't make it, that's completely fine. We're chilling and eating and having some instruction and going to sing some songs and go home. Worship on the Lord's Day is different. That's why, if we only had a third of the people there, I'd have a heck of a lot of phone calls to make on Monday morning, and so would the other pastors. Yes, worship on the Lord's Day is different, and we're going to talk about that in the coming months. How is it different? Why is it different? Second thing, it will have struck you that if you are going to take seriously anything like what Pastor Herbert says, worship is going to suddenly become hard work for some of you. It's going to become hard work for those of you who are used to the caffeine fix at 11.15. It's going to be hard work for those of you who uh, maybe you struggle to concentrate. It's going to be hard work for those of you who are used to a more let-it-happen-around-me form of worship, kind of Christian chat show with a sermon and some songs that you listen to somebody else sing, than actual engagement in worshipping the living God. And it's certainly going to be exhausting for those of you who have children. Because it turns out that children don't sit quietly, instinctively. They need to be trained in this. So not only is Sunday morning worship going to be quite exhausting for you, but you're going to have to spend some time during the week training your little ones to engage in it. Absolutely. Let me say it plainly. Sunday morning worship is the most important thing we do in the week and you should emerge from it physically, mentally and emotionally exhilarated but exhausted. And therefore, if you have children whom you love, of course 
you will be spending time with them during the week, training them to do what is necessary to stand, sit, kneel, respond, speak, sing, and so on, in a way which is in accordance with what they can manage for their age. And you know as well as I know that children are capable of much more than we normally give them credit for at whatever age they are. Uh, We set the bar far too low for our children if we imagine that they need colouring books at the age of 12 in the worship service. Uh Uh-uh. Obviously, some kids, every kid has a bad day. Some kids have particular issues that make it difficult for them to concentrate or sit still. Find a way, work around it, work with it. But, of course, it's going to be something that you devote yourself to. Serious devotion to training yourselves and preparing yourselves and then being intellectually and emotionally and even physically engaged in this activity to the point where it exhausts you. Yes, that's right. So that lengthy introduction sets the stage for what will actually be a fairly obvious set of observations from Psalm 122. Psalm 122, I'll read it. Um, And then I'll make some comments about it. And also I'll I'll make some comments about Hebrews 12. Um, uh, And I'll talk as well about what the Songs of Ascent are. I've got a little bullet point there reminding me to tell you what the Songs of Ascent are. Because this is a group of Psalms that you'll be helpful to know about. Let me read though Psalm 122. A Song of Ascent of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Psalm 122 is one of the so-called songs of ascent. Let me say a brief word about this little collection of psalms. You will know that Psalms 120 to 134, there's 15 psalms there, are part of a mini collection. Perhaps you didn't realize this, actually. In your um, Bibles, they're marked off. They've each got in the superscription, it says, a song of ascent or a psalm of, of ascent. And this collection of 15 psalms are part of the book of Psalms, but they hang together and are grouped together because they're all about the same thing. They're all about ascending, going up to the place of worship to meet the living God. And there are lots of connections with this in Israel's history. Um, Many scholars think, and this is almost certainly right, that from time to time they were the psalms that were sung by the pilgrims from all over the land of Israel as they journeyed towards Jerusalem. And as they ascended the mountain on which Jerusalem is built, perhaps they're going there for the Feast of Booths or the the Passover festival or the the Feast of Weeks or one of the other uh, gatherings with their family or whatever, but they're going up and they're singing the psalms of ascent, the psalms of going up as they're going up. There are 15 of them, and some sources say that there were 15 steps on the temple as it was rebuilt after, well, it was in the days of Solomon, so 8th century or 7th century, BC, uh, 8th or 9th century BC. There were 15 steps. This isn't 
absolutely certain in my mind, but some of the sources say they were, and that the Levites used to ascend one step at a time, and on each step they'd sing one of these 15 psalms. It's interesting that the first two letters of the Lord's name in Hebrew, which we would pronounce like Yah, Yah and Ha, the numerical value of those letters is 15. The Yah is 10 and the Ha is 5. And it's certainly the case that the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Booths happened on the 15th day of the month. And so those feasts, the 15 feasts, happened on the day when all Israel would walk up to the place in Jerusalem singing the 15 Psalms of Ascent. Um, the, the, the phrase translated a Song of Ascent, literally it's a song of the going up things or a song for the going up ones. So it's either the things that go up, steps, or the ones who go up, the Levites or the people. And of course it's related to the uh, word which is used elsewhere for Offerings that go up, the ascension offerings which go up. They're actually called ascensions. Your Bible translates them as whole burnt offerings because the whole thing was burned. But that's a description of what happened to them. The actual name of them is the ascension offerings, the offerings that are lifted up to God as a sweet-smelling aroma. And so within a Christian context, the way in which that cluster of theological themes is fulfilled is obvious to us. We now come to a greater temple. The New Covenant Age does not mean the end of holy places. It means a new and different holy place. It's not that we don't worship in a holy place anymore. We worship in the holy place in heaven. That's why we say, near the beginning of our service, lift up your hearts, we lift them up to the Lord. We're ascending to the heavenly, most, most holy place where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And that comparison between the earthly worship which was founded at Mount Sinai in the days of Moses, and the heavenly worship into which we've now been invited is the comparison that's made in Hebrews 12, where basically Hebrews 12, 18 to 29 says, um, they used to worship here on earth, that was pretty scary. We worship in heaven, that's even more scary. So you really ought to approach the Lord with reverence and awe. So it turns out Pastor John Piper is right. Because... And you'll, you'll get some of this if you listen to the podcast the next minute or two. If, if you've watched the video, you can preach along with me with this bit. Scripture uses a range of different images to describe what happens in worship. In worship, we're gathered to a holy sanctuary before a holy God. We can't just wander into his presence, but we're invited there. And we stand there as filthy sinners who have been cleansed by this same holy God of whom we ought to be afraid, therefore. Worship is also a courtroom. Your sins are forgiven. Well, one day, just to shock you, one of, our, one of your pastors might say, your sins are not forgiven. Well, no, we're actually not going to do that. Not, that would be playing fun and games with the liturgy, which would be a bad idea. But can you imagine... If after you, imagine if after you'd confessed your sins, the Lord himself thundered from heaven and said, guilty. Well, no, we worship a gracious God who has given himself in his son to suffer the punishment that we deserve for our sins. So we, as your pastors, pronounce you forgiven in the name of Jesus. But it's a courtroom. So how would you comport yourself in a courtroom? 
Uh, We're an army assembled for battle. How would you stand on parade before being sent out in the name of Jesus to fight for him? We are students gathering like Mary, seated at the Lord's feet to hear his word. Mary was not, to quote George Herbert, sleeping or gazing or leaning or gaping or scratching the head. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah, people back then probably had fleas. That's probably why they're sort of scratching. Like, Stop scratching. You're in church. Listen to Jesus, please. We gathered at a family meal. Now, can you imagine seated with Jesus at the family meal table, kind of cruising through your text messages or something? It's like, what? Worship is other things. Didn't mention this on the podcast. Of course, it's a wedding feast. The bride celebrating our relationship, which is a marriage relationship with Jesus, the heavenly bridegroom. We are ceremonially laying, again, the foundation stone in the great temple and being built together into that temple as living stones sanctified by the Spirit of God. Worship is all these things. And none of them are to be done casually. None of them are to be done in a kind of huddling or slubbering fashion. But in the kind of way that would mean you are devoting 110% of your mental and emotional and even at times physical energy to doing what you are required to do in the presence of the living God. Psalm 122 speaks very clearly about some of these things. Let me just walk you through it briefly. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. House of the Lord. Now this is a psalm of David, which is very interesting because you think if it's written by David, the house of the Lord hasn't been built at this point in Israel's history. So a couple of observations here might be helpful to try and figure out what's going on. Is David looking forward to the house of the Lord being built? Well, probably. In his own context, he's probably making reference to the... uh, tent that he constructed um, first chronicles um, is it first chronicles 13 i made a note of it i think it's first chronicles 13 he built a, a, a tent which actually is a is a fascinating piece of architecture because it's got no no internal divisions in it he used to sit before the presence of the lord and unlike the tent of moses and unlike the temple in the days of solomon david saw ahead to the greater david who would sit before the presence of the Lord, which is why in Acts 15 they quote from Amos 9 and say, we will rebuild the booth of David that has fallen because we want to welcome the Gentiles in because all the divisions have been removed, see? So that's why they don't say we're going to rebuild the tabernacle of Moses. That won't help the Gentiles. Not to rebuild the temple of of Solomon. That won't help the Gentiles. We'll rebuild the booth of David because that'll help the Gentiles. I was glad because King David gets to go up to that house, prototypical tent house, to sit before the presence of God himself, as do we. I was glad, because this is the greatest privilege. This is the thing I look forward to. How long, how long do you spend planning and preparing for things you look forward to? I know how long my wife and daughter spend planning and preparing for holidays, sorry, vacations. Like, I, I, I tease them because I pretend I'm not going to pack until you know, 10 minutes before we do to leave. And Becky and Abby are like, you've got to pack, Daddy. And they've packed three days previously. They've unpacked and packed again and unpacked and packed again because they're just like so excited because it's a big deal. 
It's a big deal. And so, of course, they want to be prepared. And I'm only teasing. I've got all my stuff there. I've just left the bag empty so that just because Dad's got to do what Dad's got to do, right? But how we how see this is the thing. I wonder if we can take it for granted. How much do we take for granted our access into the holy presence of the living God? Yeah, we get to do this every week. And so when opportunities for distraction present themselves, our minds are so easily led astray. Let me speak to some particular situations. Um, ladies, we have, a, we have a nursing room for you for, uh, if you've got young children who need to be fed during worship. I'm not sure we've done a very good job of helping you in that space to focus on worshipping the living God. Uh, Pastor Shaw and Mr Capone are, are working to um, reinstate a live stream video link there and we'll turn all the chairs around so that when you go in there it's not so tempting to do what we would all be tempted to do in that situation just to talk with one another while the worship goes on in the background I, I should ask you to accept my apologies for not seeing that it took the ladies fellowship committee to point that out to me I'm like that's a really good point we should fix that let's not get distracted or Dads, we've got some great dads of great toddlers in the congregation. And you know what it's like. They've been sitting there for 35 minutes and they get kind of itchy and they start. And so what you do is you think, okay, well, look, I'll just take him outside and we'll just walk up and down in one of the downstairs corridors or something, just up and down here with him, walk up and down. And it's like, okay, sometimes you've got to do that, right? Sometimes you've got to preemptively take a child out of worship before he starts howling. But what are you trying to do then? I, are you saying, I guess this is it for today, let's just walk back and forth and I'll just feed him candy at a rate fast enough to keep him from being disruptive? Or, are you going to discipline your son and wait till he's calmed down and say, right, now we're going to go back into worship and we're going to sit there for 15 minutes quietly. And he's like, don't want to. It's like, well, you haven't trained him at home yet, have you? Practice. But they can sit for hours watching Disney movies. They can sit for an hour and 35 or <coughs> 45 minutes. <laughs> they can if, if we train them, leading by example, showing them this is the most important thing we ever get to do. I was glad when they said to me, we can, let's go to the house of the Lord. And it's interesting, let us go. David is looking forward to being with his... Um, brother and sister Israelites again. And there is a corporate element to this, isn't it? And a lot of how we conduct ourselves in worship is actually horizontal in orientation. We're singing encouragement and exhortation to each other, Colossians 3, Ephesians 5. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Speaking to one another. You know, it really matters how we sing. It matters because the Lord is lifted up on the praises of his people and I want him to have the loudest throne in Fort Worth but it's also important because of encouraging each other I have the privilege of standing at the front of worship and getting my hair blown back what's left of it um, every time that you guys open your mouth to sing but I get the full force of all of what you're singing you guys some of you sitting two thirds of the way back well you're really going to have to turn the volume up to 11 and rip the knob off then aren't you because otherwise you're not going to get the same level of volume yeah, we want to have our Lord lifted up and all the people around us encouraged by our praises. And if you sing out of tune, it doesn't matter. Well, it does matter, but just sing loudly anyway. People will forgive loud singing. 
People always forgive out of tune singing as long as it's enthusiastic, and you can always practice. Like on Wednesday night, for example. Verse 2, let's just speed up. Um, Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Uh, The gates is obviously within the city itself, but it's also probably a reference to the place of judgment mentioned in verse 5, which we'll get to in a second. Verses 3 and 4, Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up. The tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There is a strong corporate focus here. The city of God is often in the Psalms and the prophets, and certainly in Revelation, a way of talking about the people who inhabit the city of God. And so here, it's the image of worship that's in view is of a a united community of people who have all come single-mindedly to focus on the same thing, which is the one thing that can unite us, which is Jesus. We will not be united by having chosen the same blend at Starbucks to sip at various points during the worship service. And if you're buying stuff from Starbucks on Sunday mornings, I have another conversation I want to have with you about buying stuff from Starbucks on Sunday mornings. Not because Starbucks, but because buying Sunday. So we'll talk about that another time. Verse 5. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. This is fascinating because it doesn't just echo the, um, the judgment that we hear. You hear the Lord's judgment for you, not against you, after you've confessed your sins during worship. It's also... Uh, very likely reflective of uh, the, the people of God as those who have been appointed to judge the nations and to judge angels, 1 Corinthians 6. Think of what Isaiah says, Isaiah chapter 2, when he anticipates the nations coming up to the house of the Lord, to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. What it's anticipating is that people who don't know the Lord will come in and it'll be like, whoa, this is something special. And then verse for he shall judge between the nations. And we are those who, by responding to the Lord in worship, show what is right. We, we, we become the measuring stick against which inadequate responses are measured. This is fascinating, right? What's an inadequate response to the living God? Well, Talking or sleeping or gazing or leaning or half kneeling or any undutiful behaviour. That's, that's how the world responds to the living God. It's like, whatever. I've got my coffee, I've got the Sunday newspaper, leave me alone. What we are called to do is to instantiate in our own lives and our own approach to the Lord, when we enter the holy sanctuary on the Lord's day, this is how we respond to the living God. And thus the nations are judged. And thus... People who come in will see, my goodness, he's got, my mate who I know at work, who I see, you know, he's having a laugh with the employees, and, he's, and he, I see him like deadly serious, and serious joy overflowing from him, and earnestness in prayer, and clarity of mind as he's clearly as he's thinking about the, the reading of the word, and, and then joy again in his singing. I'm like, is that how we're supposed to respond to the living God? Yes. Yes, that's right. We, we have a whole excursus here on evangelism. Let me just say this. The way that evangelism is done in the worship service is by you showing the proper response to the living God, and me as well. That's how you do it. 
Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. There's so much to talk about here, but let me just point out one thing. The peace which reigns among the people of God when they worship together. This is connected to the theme of our unity in Christ. It's Christ, who is the locus of our unity, he's united Jew and Gentile. He is now uniting people from every nation under heaven in him. And in worship, what happens is that we see in concentrated form the unity that is really true of us all the time. And we see it to the extent that we are single-mindedly, as one man, and male and female, fixing our thoughts on Jesus. So much for Psalm 122. Let me say one or two minutes briefly about Hebrews 12. I've already hinted about what it's talking about. Hebrews 12, well, okay, the book of Hebrews is a sustained argument by somebody who's not Paul, whatever, I'm sorry, it just isn't Paul, right? Because Hebrews 2, but we'll come talk about it another time. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is a sustained argument directed at Hebrew Christians who have turned to Christ but feel drawn back to the old ways, the old covenant structures, the temple worship, circumcision, Moses, the sacrifices, the old covenant priesthood and so on. And the argument of the book is, why would you want to do that? Because firstly, it's going to come to an end. And secondly, because it's written in about 60 AD and 70 AD is just around the corner. It's going to come to an end. And secondly, it wasn't so great anyway. It wasn't as great as what we now have in Christ. So you get these two themes throughout the book of Hebrews. It's all passing away, all that old covenant stuff. Stick with Christ because he's better anyway. And the worship of Christ is better in this particular way. It's more frightening. It's more awe-inspiring. It ought to stir within us greater fear as we approach the living God and such is the argument that's found in verse 18 and down through to 24. Let me read it. In blue, you've got all the things that characterize the worship around Mount Sinai. There are seven of them. And the author says, you haven't come to that. You haven't come to what may be touched, to blazing fire, Mount Sinai, darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. You haven't come to that. I'm like, well, that'd be quite impressive, because that'd be quite scary if we'd come to that. Then he goes on, verse 20 and 21. It's so terrifying that Moses said, I'm just like, like, totally terrified. You have come, verse 22, to something greater. You've come to Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai. You've come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, not the earthly Jerusalem. You've come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. We're gathered with the angelic host worshipping God in heaven, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Eight things, because seven, old world, eight, new creation. Verse 25 is the point of it. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape when they refused him on earth, if they took lightly the worship of the living God and they didn't escape, 
how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth. It was pretty scary. Now his voice will shake the heavens. Down to verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Quoting John Piper. No, sorry, I mean this. For our God is a consuming fire. He will not be messed with. In conclusion, my exhortation to you is to come to the living God in worship on the Lord's Day with a holy, expectant, joyful fear and direct all your attention to focusing on what we're doing, whom we're encountering, and let us strip away, and this is not just about coffee cups, is it? It is about, but it's about probably a hundred other things that prevent us from fixing our thoughts on Jesus Christ. Let me lead us in prayer. Merciful Father, we are grateful to you for making us citizens of an unshakable kingdom. We ask that you would make us increasingly fit citizens of that kingdom. And to the degree that we may have come to take for granted things which are a glorious privilege, but um, we may even be treating lightly. Would you forgive us our sins and stir afresh within us a renewed zeal for holiness, a renewed zeal for your perfection, and a renewed commitment to fix every fibre of our being upon you when we approach you in worship. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.